Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Topics in the whole course, actually. I really enjoy this one. Um, so, basically, what's kind of cognition? You all know this. It's thinking. So, we're talking about thinking, uh, problem solving, that kind of stuff. Okay? Uh, memory as well. So, in our cognition class at the university that Dr. Bloomfield, great teaches, um, we talk about problem solving, things like that, and representations. Whereas uh, we all we also have a memory class. We used to have a course called Memory and Cognition years ago, but it was too much stuff in one class. So we split it So we have a course in memory, which you should all take next term with me because it's awesome. Um, and you shouldn't take anybody else's classes but mine. I don't know. That's not true. It's not true. It's not fair. Frankly, I like fewer people in my classes, then I have less work to do. <laughs> um, it makes setting up presentations easier too. When you're at 48 people animal behaviors, I don't know. Everybody in a two-minute presentation for 40% of your final grade. Um, so we're talking about problem solving, memory, categorization, which you would talk about in Lori's cognition class, for example. Um, that kind of thing. So that's what we'll talk about today, those, those things. So let's start with the last one first, uh, categorization. This is something we're exceedingly, we humans are exceedingly good at, putting things in categories. Um, we kind of can't help but do it. We do it very young. We, we do it as, as little babies. We immediately categorize things as, well, for example, things you can eat, things you can't eat. For example, I mean, just, you know, things like that. Something that's really important is typicality. So, is something typical of something that's in the category? If it's most like what's in a category, we say that it's part of the category. So, if you understand what I mean. So, like, for example, a penguin is a lot less bird-like than a robin. Now, if I was to ask you, is a penguin a bird, you will all say yes, I hope. You will also all say yes, the robin is a bird. But it's going to take you longer to say yes, the penguin's a bird. It doesn't take much longer, but it's statistically significant. Because it takes, it's a measurable amount of time, and we can say yes, it takes you longer to say a penguin is a bird than a robin is a bird. Or that a dolphin is a mammal versus a horse is a mammal. It takes you longer. I guess I use dog as my example there. Um, Boaster and then derailed twin. Um, they, this is kind of cool, they had experts, non-experts, um, and local tribes people classify birds. Just put them into different groups. Um, and the experts were biologists. The non-experts were regular well, people like us. And the local tribes, local folks. So the end was in New Guinea. 
all these different tropical birds. And they said, classify these. Now, what are the biologists going to use? They use taxonomic classification. What are all of us going to use? Well, we're just going to use probably what it looks like. And the local, local tribes people, they've grown up with these animals. You and I haven't seen the pictures. You haven't seen these animals before. We see these pictures. We say, that looks like one of those, uh, you know, cuckoo for cocoa puffs birds. We'll put that one there. Whatever, right? Hey, look, it's Toucan Sam. So, the neat thing is, they agree like 90-odd percent of the time, all these three groups, on what the classifications are. The interesting thing is here, the biologists are doing it based on taxonomy. They're saying that this is a whatever, this, this species, whatever the, 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 the Latin name is of the species, right? And it's interesting that that overlaps beautifully with both what non-experts, us, and with experts, people that grow up with those animals, think. Right? It shows that, in fact, we're good, all humans, we, being the humans, are good at picking out biological characteristics from looking at something. It's something we should be good at. We should be able to say, that kind of animal is, I've never seen one of those before, but I bet it's good to eat, because the ones that look a lot like that are also delicious. Right? That one is probably dangerous, because the other things that look like that, the other things with whiskers, claws, and a tail, and some spots, they kill you. I've never seen a cheetah before, but jaguars scare the shit out of me, and that's enough for me. So we should be good at that. It makes a great deal of evolutionary sense. Imagine if we had to learn about everything. First time you saw it, you didn't know what it was. Right? So I got my cough drops here, which I eat incessantly. Right? So I have a little cough drops. And I say to you, I, I give this to you, you go, well, I don't even know. Assuming, because you've never seen a fisherman's friend cough drop before. Yes, suck not a fisherman's friend. Um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's an old joke, but a good one. If I gave that to you, you've never seen one of these cough drops before, you'd say, I don't know what that is. I wonder if I can live inside of it. Perhaps it's a piece of furniture. <laughs> no, you know what this is. You know this is what we've been eating. Right? And it's delicious. So this is something all of us, not just humans, this is something animals should be very good at. We should be very good at getting what the common commonalities are between different items and saying, okay, that makes this a uh, piece of food, that makes this a piece of furniture or whatever. So when you look at a penguin, think about the bird-like traits it has. Does it have feathers? Yeah, but they don't really look feathery, do they? Right? Does it have, does it lay eggs? Yeah, they lay eggs. Do they fly? <coughs> no. Do they, what do they do? Well, they swim. Okay, yeah. Other birds swim underwater. Okay, that's weird. Then you think about robins. Robins, they sing, they lay eggs. Well, penguins lay eggs too, fair enough. They have feathers. And dolphins, of course, basically just look like fish. And I have met people at the university level that claim that dolphins are fish. Dolphins are mammals. Right? But they look a lot like fish. So no one gets these wrong. Very few people get this one wrong. No one gets these wrong. 
But it takes you longer. And it makes sense because we categorize stuff. It's something we're very good at and we're very good at doing even when we're very young. Right? Even when we're very young. We think in categories. We think in what's called a semantic network. Um, again, if you take uh, cognition or memory, either of those sources, you will even learn about this. So the way that our knowledge about the world is organized is what's called it's, it's a semantic network. So it's something like this. So it's all these nodes that are attached together. So let's do birds. Birds will fly. And they lay eggs. And feathers. And that'll do. Okay. And you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, let's, let's put in. They have uh, two legs. And let's say also, they're part of the group, bigger group, animals. Okay. So this is how it's represented, probably. We can't really know. But we can guess by looking at uh, categorization experiments how long it takes to categorize things. Well, animals all have two legs. That, that's connected. Not all animals lay eggs. Whales, flies, insects. Insects are animals, but airplanes aren't. Okay? And you can go on and on. This is food. Well, this is food. But now you should call it birds. We call it chicken, we call it food. I think we just say bird. It's funny because you don't think of birds as something you eat. Sometimes you say that. I get a bird in the oven. You always hear old people say that for some reason. I don't know why. Gotta get the bird in the oven. Right? You know, I cook it overnight, really, really long. We get it dry out, and then I rip it apart with a fork. And then no one wants to eat it, and I don't know why. Old people cooking, right? Steak that tastes a little less like beef. Um, a little too strong for my stomach. <laughs> oh, I'm making fun of old people now. It's, it's really sad. I, plus, what other group can I pick on? Maybe, maybe perhaps later, babies. Um, defenseless babies, too, not, you know, maybe orphan babies. I'm going to make fun of orphan babies later. Orphan babies whose parents are in jail. No, they're, they're orphans, they're dead, who die in jail. Um, okay. Anyway, it's a semantic network. I don't know how I got into work with babies, but uh, if we, in fact, if we talk about birds, that actually activates planes. How do we know that? If I then ask you about airplanes, you do a little bit better at recognizing airplanes if you've already been talking about birds. So it's structured this way, okay? It's probably structured, and it's a loose hierarchy, so animals above birds. But you can see there's also connections going across. So it's not just hierarchical, one thing above the other, which is what people thought for a long time. So natural categories are going to be good. So planes is an odd example here, because it's not a natural thing. Um, but man-made ones are pretty good, too. We can, we can use a category like airplanes, and that works out. Some of the first work um, done on this with, with non-humans was, was done by a guy named John Hernstein. And what Hernstein did, he's a, a, a Skinner PhD student. 
And what he did is he showed pigeons pictures of trees and non-trees, I think. Yeah, it was trees and stuff that wasn't trees. And because he thought pigeons would be little trees and fish, that's what it was. I've used non-trees before. Trees and fish. Thinking it's a natural category. Stuff they've encountered, and they can do it. They, you show them pictures, all kinds of pictures of trees, you give them food when they see a tree. Then eventually they show a picture of a tree they've never seen before, they peck the thing, anyway, say, so yeah, that's a tree. Great. The thing is, later on, other people tried with other categories. I've used cat cars before, because it's easy to find pictures of cars. This is before Google Image Search, this is back in the 90s. Um, when you had to go, you find a book, and you took pictures of the book. Take pictures of a book and you put these slides up. We didn't mention it was a different time. It's a different time. It's before Google. BG. And so it's easy to find pictures of cars and cars work just fine. Or you can use completely artificial things like red, five edged, three dimensional objects. And, and pigeons can learn that. And so can humans. So we're just going to categorize it. Which makes you think about stereotypes, right? Because what are stereotypes if not overgeneralizing from a category? Right? That's what they are. That's all they are. I mean, again, we're describing them. I'm not saying they're good or bad. They just are. We have to like We can understand it. And that's the interesting thing, I think, here. So, if you said that the men are insensitive. That's a good. That's a good. Uh, that's, that's a. That's, that's a. You know, men are pigs, right? That's a, that's a good story, right? Sure. Let's go. Sorry, guys. It's best to pick on something that you belong to. You can't get accused of anything that might lie some sort of investigative committee. So, so we we say you know, and you hear people say that. Or you, you know, even you see ads on TV. They infuriate me when fathers are shown to be stupid in TV ads. It, it really bothers me. I do lots of stuff, and I find it a little. I'm not horribly offended. I'm a white male. Things work out pretty well for me, even with the blind thing with the albinism. Still, white male. It's not really that bad a game. But when I see like. The father in the ad is stupid, and then the mom comes and fixes it. That's the old, the other way it used to be was the mother would stand, this is back when I was a kid, the mother would say, I don't know how to get my wife's lighter or my colors brighter. And a man would come in and give her, give her some detergent. Well, it's like this, honey. Um, and now they've gone the other way. <laughs> so men are idiots. Great stereotype, right? You hear it a lot, right? The men do the have raised children, these kind of things. If you look for it, it's subtle, but it's out there. I said it. I'm not going to complain too much being a white male. Okay? As I once said when I was on, well, we were on strike as, as a TH when I was at U of T in 1991. We went on strike. And I was on a picket line saying, hey, look, a bunch of overeducated white kids are protesting. Boy, our life's going to be hard. We're all going to get PhDs. <laughs> so, well, of course we can't. Stereotypes are mean and evil. They're developed to put to keep people down. 
And it, it's developed by, uh, I don't know, I'm being facetious here. Oh, you got that. Good, glad we all laughed and realized I was being, you know, ready to get it, okay, you developed it, you know, stick it to the man. Um, so that's what, I mean, you can hear people say that, it's still like extra developed. It seems to me that a lot of them are, cat- are overgeneralizations of what happens in a certain group. So you say that men don't know how to raise children. Women are better at raising children than men, more nurturing those things. We know that's, we could say that that's a fair thing to say. We don't say they're bad at it, we can certainly say that women are going to be better at it. Because they're, you know, first of all, they can make their own food, women, men can't. Men order pizza. Right? <laughs> Whereas women can, you know, build their own food. So they make milk, so I'm saying there. I'm saying women should be cooking in the kitchen. Please don't take it. <laughs> Everything would be fine if you girls just go back to the kitchen where you belong. Um, I'm glad you all know I'm joking. I'm just hoping nobody's walking by and suspecting. Good. So, the thing is, there may be some truth to stereotypes to a point. And what we do is we say, this group behaves like this, this group behaves like this. And we hear them with all kinds of groups, right? It doesn't matter what your group is, and we all belong to separate. But you might hear about, you know, you hear comedians tend to touch on these things, right? So you might hear somebody talking about when they're like a, a Jewish comedian or a black comedian, uh, Italian, whatever, and they talk about what it's like to have grown up as one of, in their cultural group, right? And they can mention things, and everybody laughs at them, especially people from that group, because that's who their target audience is. Okay. There may be some truth to those things in general. Um, a lot of stereotypes are actually not that inaccurate for groups. For groups of people. And I'm not saying that everything in a stereotype is true. That would be ridiculous. But also rejecting them out of hand is also silly. They in fact tend to underestimate the proclivities of groups. So you say that men are... Men are just thinking about sex. You hear that a lot. Right? You hear these made up statistics from Twitter accounts like OMG Facts. People think those things as, you know, oh, you're going to cite that. You know, men think about sex every seven seconds. Well, first of all, it's, it's less than seven. Um, but I don't, I don't know what the number would be. But we see these things, and often, Data on stereotypes about cultural groups, including the sexist men and women, tend to underestimate the proclivities of the group, not of the individual. Okay? Not of the individual. You don't judge an individual by the color of their skin or the language they speak or their religion or lack of it or what they have between the legs. You judge them by the content of their character. I'm paraphrasing Martin Luther King when he made that speech. He never mentioned what's between your legs. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't say that. He was a little classier than me. Right? So, stereotypes come from categorization. What we have to do is realize when we're using them and over, when we're using them to judge individuals, that's when we're making a, a, a huge mistake. And don't use them to judge groups either. You know? Because we're more than saying that we're different, humans are humans. There's way more similarities between any human set of human group and any other group than differences. Okay? People are people. 
more than anything else. I go into a Depeche Mode thing there, but I won't. Nobody even knows that song. I have it on the phone. So it depends on how you use a stereotype. And recognizing that you are using a stereotype when you use one. When you say that this group doesn't drive as well as that group, you're probably not, you know. But realize that you're, you can't judge an individual based on the group membership. You just cannot. It doesn't help you. Right? Because those things, group differences are not about individuals. They're about groups. Right? So if you want to talk about individual differences in your, your paper, right? This is exactly the case. When you talk about individual differences, you can't say groups. Like we say men are going to be better at women than math. But I can't say you're better than math. Right? You may be. But if we took the groups in here, and the guys versus the women in math, we'd kill you. And then we tried the spelling or the grammar, and you'd kill us. Because women are better at verbal stuff. But individual differences, so we don't look at individual differences based on group membership. It doesn't help us understand them. Right? These are about comparing groups. So you have to understand that. You have to understand that. It's an important thing to... And it's a subtle point, and it's not saying that all stereotypes are true, and it's not saying that you should... But even if they are, you shouldn't judge individuals by what group they belong to. Is my bleeding heart liberal credential still intact? Am I okay? Okay. Okay, so that's categorization. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, as far as memory, think about all the stuff we run into each day. I went to run into some chairs. I'm just going to put them over here. On a moment-by-moment basis, we run into all kinds of stuff. Now think about it, because we don't pay attention to all stuff. Most of the stuff that happens in our lives doesn't go into memory. Doesn't distort it. Right? Like right now, I can feel that my wallet's in my back pocket and my keys are in my front pocket. I don't remember that. That's not going to be coded later. I wonder where my wallet was yesterday. When I was teaching. <laughs> it's, it's not something I'm going to. I can make a pretty good guess. Right? Because eventually we all become our dads and have in our genes a worn out part where our wallet is. As much as we think when we're younger, we're never going to do that, we all become our fathers. Even the women. <laughs> <laughs> women never have that, because they have persons, right? Most of it we ignore, most of it's useless, right? We don't remember it all, we don't remember hardly anything. Of all the information, we remember, we pick the important information, don't we? An efficient memory like ours or any other species forgets and does not even process most, most of what it encounters. Right? Most of what, you're, what you encounter each day, you don't process. Because it's meaningless and useless. You wouldn't want to remember all that kind of detail. Think about when you're young, if you, you can think back to when you're, your first memory. Right? The first thing I remember, I remember the day I got glasses. I was 18 months old. The reason I remember it is because it's the first time I could see anything. So it's a pretty big moment. Right? And I remember this. I remember getting glasses and seeing a school bus. And that was pretty cool. Do I remember anything else? 
I know where I got my glasses. I know we got them in Churchill Plaza. We live right there. And I remember walking along there. That's about it. So not too much. Then I think to, the next thing I remember well is my brother being born. I was two and a half. That's, that's the first pretty good memory I have. Um, and my brother Dan was born. He came home. My mom put him in front of me on a blanket. And she said, it's your brother Dan, Danny. And I said, and I gave him my toy cards and I said, play. And I looked at my mother and I said, well, he doesn't play. You know, like, take it back, he's broken. <laughs> so, that's fine, that's a cute story, but I remember weird details, meaningless details. And I, I've checked on these details with my mother because they're details that are so stupid to remember. I remember the color of the walls in the living room of our place in Kingston. I remember the kind of flooring we had, I remember where the couch was. And you think, ooh, he's creepy. I have a bit of a creepy memory. It's also the case that that's useless to remember. Right? I'm remembering useless detail. Detail that today you would forget. Right? If you came over to my house, and please don't come by my house, but if you came by my house, a month later if I said to you, how is my you know, family room arranged? You'd probably make guesses like, let me see, I think your furniture faces a TV. But beyond that, you probably wouldn't remember. Because it wouldn't matter. You'd say, oh, what I do remember is the fact that you said, why are you in my house? <laughs> We're assuming that you broke it into my house. And I'm catching you red-handed as you're walking away with my Xbox 360. And you're saying, it's just, it was just for entertainment purposes only. I'm just doing this for fun. I was robbing <laughs> So, the interesting thing here is that we, we our memory is efficient. But when we're kids, it's when we're babies especially, Toddlers, our memory is completely inefficient. We remember stupid detail. So think back, you think back to some of your earliest memories. You would remember the oddest thing, and you might amaze your parents. Say something like, like I remember the color of the blanket my brother was brought home in, and you might think, well, yeah, it's 1967, it'll be blue. And he was put down on a beige colored blanket, and my mom had light it laid out on the floor. I tell my mom these things, and she goes, oh, that's weird. <laughs> your memory is so, I bet you know it's your mom, right? So she's like, Everything you do is great. Your memory is amazing. How do you do that? Well, I get certain skills, Mom, despite my upbringing. <laughs> so we actually ignore a lot of what we encounter, which makes a great deal of sense. Because most of what we encounter is completely and utterly useless. I knew the color of the walls of the basement of the Churchill Plaza Library. When we moved back there in 1996, we went to walk in. I said, I used to go here for story time when I was two of the walls downstairs were yellow. And I walked downstairs, I said, okay, that was odd. But again, well, I should remember the content of some of those stories. But no, they're all gone. I'm sure it was the legend of good, seven Chinese brothers, you know, classic kids' books. That's a weird interview, the seven Chinese brothers. It's the weirdest story ever. It's probably now offensive. It's like horribly offensive, actually. The drawings were even just remembering them. Um, but it involves drinking the ocean or something. It's weird. It's also an REM song. No? Mentioned a Seinfeld episode? Okay. Yeah, it's probably out of circulation now because of the exceedingly offensive racial stereotypes in it, which really are offensive. So that's us. 
Let's talk about animals that have really offensive uh, um, memories, really effective memories, and that's food storing birds. Um, so there's a few. Uh, that's a that's a black-capped chickadee. We'll talk a bit about those. They uh, store food and remember it later for consumption. This is a, the, the reason I'm mentioning this stuff, even though it's about human stuff, of course, is because this shows how you can integrate evolutionary explanations and everything else all together. That's a Clark's nutcracker. They're about that big. They, that's the one that stores 30,000 seeds. Remember, we're 25,000 them are six months later. That's uh, David Sherry. He's one of the people that has done a lot of this work. One of my old students, Mike Boisvert. We now teach at Fanshawe College. That's an old buddy of mine, Rob Hampton, on his wedding, uh, like on his, sorry, his, uh, what they call it, honeymoon in Africa, and he's holding a wildebeest skull. It's the kind of thing Rob Hampton would do on his honeymoon. That's Sarah Shuttleworth walking on Seth Parks Road in Oxford. She's my PhD supervisor. And that is Lord Krebs, Baron of Whiteham. Uh, at the time, we just called him John. John Krebs. You heard of the Krebs cycle? That's his father, so his dad won a Nobel Prize, so he also went into biology. I said to him once, John, if my father won a Nobel Prize in biology, I'd become like a NASCAR driver. I wouldn't go into biology. He says, yes, what is NASCAR? <laughs> so I say, it's like Formula One with rednecks <laughs> and no supermodels. Excellent. It's also racing. Excellent. <laughs> That's actually a decent impression of John, by the way. It's funny, he, um, he's a knight now. He's Sir John Krebs. And he's a baron, and he's in the freaking House of Lords. He's got the greatest email address ever. He's the principal of a college at Oxford called Jesus College. Um, so his, his address is principal at Jesus. Oxford.ac.uk. And I, I sent him this email because Sarah had won an award, and we, a bunch of us had nominated her, me and Rob, this big award for Canadian psychology, and John wrote one of the letters supporting it. So I thought I'd tell him, and then I was like, I haven't talked to the guy since he became a knight. So how do you address a guy who's a knight? Do, you, do I start with dear Sir Krebs? <laughs> no, it'd be Sir John, right? Because I was Sir whatever the first name is. And I thought, well, I'm Canadian. But I respect the fact that he's an honor. So I decided to start the email with this, hey, John. <laughs> and it worked out fine. He was all very excited, so it was pretty cool. But yeah, I know a knight, so I'm kind of, that's why I put that picture there, because I know a knight. Um, so what this is doing, this stuff has done, is put evolution and cognition together. This is a nice example. John and a guy named Anderson, uh, so Anderson Krebs in 1978, came up with a mathematical model talking about food storing. So what these birds do is they store food out in the environment and they recover later, okay? So you may have heard some of you talked about this stuff before. When should food storing evolve? Well, it should only evolve when you recover your own seeds. Because, why is that? Well, think about this. People used to think it was a communal thing. Like, I store my seeds, and you store your seeds, and you store your seeds, and we all recover each other's seeds, and nature's a great big socialist paradise. Right? We all storing, sharing, and isn't nature a wonderful... No. It won't work that way. You know why? Because... You know what easily evolves? Cheating. Right? So you know what? I'm going to let all you guys, I'm going to be a cheater. I'm going to let all you guys store food. I'll recover your food. And while you're out storing food, I'm going to screw your wives. So I'm going to also father a whole bunch of children passing on my genes so you can't get your genes passed on. Oh, and I'm also, so I, I don't 
I don't have to even worry about getting food anymore. I'm, you guys do all the work for me, food storing disappears. If it's communal. How does it work? If, it's, if I'm storing mine, you're storing yours, you're storing yours. It looks much better. It's the only way it's going to evolve, right? So that's a mathematical model. So it starts from population biology. This is beautiful. Uh, Dave Sherry, you saw him in the bottom left picture there. Um, and Sherry, Adrian Stevens. Uh, uh, and uh, Dave Stevens, I, I follow him on Twitter. Um, it's kind of cool because what he did is they took seeds, uh, pine, pine nuts, okay, and they had radioactive pine nuts. And then they had birds, these are marsh tits, store, but carry the food away, as I said, tits. Carry the food away, and they hid it in white and wood at Oxford. Why they use radioactive ones? They didn't just want to give birds radiation sickness. Well, they did not, they were obviously high enough to do that. What they had was a Geiger camera. They had to walk around into the woods and go, oh, I found a seed. Because it's, it's, you know, giving off radiation. And then they moved them. Half, a third of them they moved 10 centimeters over. And another third they moved 30 centimeters. And another third they left. Now, if the birds are remembering where their own seeds are, the ones that have been moved shouldn't get eaten. Right? Because they're not going to be able to find them. If, however, they're remembering, they're all just, it's nature's a socialist paradise, we all find each other's seeds, it shouldn't matter if we move them or not. And guess what happened? The ones that get, the ones that get moved are less, are, more, are less likely to have been found by the birds. So they waited about a week and they went looking again. Okay? That's pretty cool stuff. So the birds are recovering their own seeds and they're probably using memory. This is what people figure. This is what these guys figure. Okay. So questions so far. Does that make sense? Now, what Sarah, who you saw in my PhD advisor, and John did when Sarah was on a sabbatical at Oxford, and me too, is they had, they set up a room, and I've been to this room, it's about a quarter the size of this room, so it's about from here, and like that, it's a small room, and they had four by fours, yeah, uh, set up like this, with two by fours all coming off of them, okay, and then coming this way too, and holes built in them, they called them artificial trees. Okay, just so it's a place, and they had holes built in them, so it's a place for the birds to store food, okay? So, they had marsh tits, and they were storing seeds in this lab environment. Marsh tits are basically just like chickadees. They look like black-capped chickadees from Canada. Um, they, they store food just like black-capped chickadees do. The only real difference is their, 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 their call. Instead of chickadee-dee-dee, -dee -dee, it's chickadee-dee-dee-dee. See, I did it with a British accent there. See what I was doing? Okay. Wow. Okay. Get that wind knocked out of me on that one. Um, Sarah, well, Sarah actually ran the experiment, so I should, should say Sarah, you know, they did it together. I know Sarah ran the trials. The birds were better at recovery of cached seeds, ones that they put in, the birds themselves had hidden, than the ones that Sarah went in and just put in at random and randomly chose the holes. 
Okay? So in other words, it's again, not just encountering seeds out in the world, it's I know where I put my seeds. They also did the whole, remove half the seeds that the birds stored. And they still, they, didn't, they weren't doing it, because this is a question, are they doing it by smell? People always think that everybody else thought that they're doing it by smell. They were everything by smell. No. First of all, chickadees and marsh and birds like that aren't really good. They don't have noses. You ever look at one of these things? They have beaks. They don't do a lot of smelling. And diurnal birds aren't very good at smelling at all. However, when you cook them, they smell delicious. Um, so what they did is they removed half the seeds after the birds destroyed them, and the birds didn't discriminate between the little holes that had seeds in them and the ones that didn't. So they're visiting places. didn't matter if there was a seed there or not. They're not using smell. They're like, I put a seed there. Where did there a seed go that I put there? It's not there anymore. It's not very nice. I think this Canadian woman's taking what she's pilfering my seeds. Because that's how marsh tits talk. And they knew Sarah was Canadian. I'm just having fun. I, I, I care so little if you guys learn anything, as long as I'm having a good time. Um, that's not true. So, that's pretty cool stuff. So we know it's memory. Now, they should be very good at this. Uh, if a marsh tit or a chickadee doesn't recover their, their, their uh, seeds in the winter, in, within about oh, an hour or so of waking up, they just die. They will they'll eat 12 grams, these birds. If they don't eat right away, they, they're dead. So another general memory test, there have been clear differences between stores and non-stores in a different family, in the corvids. That's the, uh, the, the nutcrackers and the jays. So we have the uh, Clark's nutcracker, I should you a picture of. That's Al Campbell's group over in Massachusetts. Um... And you, there are storing and non-storing corvids. So, I don't think crows store food. And their memory doesn't show up to be as good as St. Clark's Nutcracker. Great. Well, that makes a great deal of sense in the corvids. Uh, but not in the, not in the parrots. It wasn't, wasn't found in the, in the, in the, so much in the food storing. Uh, Like chickens and, and marsh, marsh tits, things like that. Now, I think I've talked, maybe I haven't, maybe it was in this class, I get so confused, about hippocampal differences. The point is that hippocampus, which is important in memory, is bigger than you would expect in the body weight in food stores than it is in non stores. Okay? So I may have not talked about that in here, maybe in somewhere else. But hippocampus, bigger in food stores than in non stores. Important in memory. So, what about these parrots? What about these birds that are the chickadees and the marsh tits? Uh, so chickadees and tit mice. Are there any differences there as far as memory? Because we know that it's, I mentioned it in cordons. And the data there to this day are equivocal. In other words, sometimes people find better memory in stores than non-stores, and other times it goes the other way around. And indeed, there are non-storing parrots, not in North America, but there are over in Europe. Um, the, like I said, marsh tit is a food store. And so is the coal tit, but the blue tit isn't a food store, and neither is the grape tit. Yes, I said grape tits. And it's perfectly legal. Paris Major, it's a kind of bird. 
So sometimes you find differences, uh, but they go both ways. So the question, the thing is, maybe it's not how much the birds are remembering, because that's what these things tend to be. Are they remembering how much, like more, are they for longer time? Okay? That's tend to what these experiments have been about over the years. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's how they are actually remembering, what their representation is like. Right? Could be that, rather than how long or how much. Do you understand the difference? Okay. So we can call those two differences a qualitative versus a quantitative difference. A qualitative difference is how they remember. A quantitative difference is how much or for how long. So uh, a bright young graduate student showed up in Sarah Shuttleworth's lab. Uh, that's, the, that's just after I was going to move uh, to London. Yeah. yeah. Isabel was like seven months pregnant with, with her. It was a long time ago. Um, so this is work that I, 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 this is all my idea. It's my PhD stuff. Um, when I got to Sarah's lab, she said, what do you want to study and when I was for a master's? And I said, I want to know how we remember and she said, that's a bit of a big thing for a master's. Let's save that for your PhD. So I did. So this is something that I did. Um, it, I compared story and stories and non-stories on what they remember on different tasks. Okay. So the two papers that uh, started this stuff out are Broadbeck 94 and Broadbeck and Shuttleworth 95. Um, Broadbeck and Shuttleworth 95 uses these new, these fancy things called computer touch screens. They were $2,000 a piece. And that was just for the attachment that went on the 17-inch monitor, 17-inch flat-screen monitor. Oh, boy, those were $2,000 monitors, and they were CRTs. They were this thick, and they were hot. You could have heated a colony on the moon. You had a heat that came out. And I ran, I'll tell you something. Yeah, that's right. 486s running at 33 megahertz. Pretty high computers. We, had, we got a grant for of like twelve and a half thousand dollars to buy all the gear. There's more computing power right here than the iPhone five, and we think you're going to love it. Um, <laughs> and we call it iPhone. So anyway, this is a, this is I'm very proud of this experiment, frankly. Um, this is a pretty good experiment that I did. This is one of the, this is like, there's seven experiments like this, okay? Five. Okay, so it works like this. Um, the chickadee would find a feeder in the room. I call it the study phase. There's four feeders. There's, there's 105, I think I made, 104, that me and Isabel made, my wife who teaches French. Now, um, at the time she was working in an office job to let get me through school. Thank you. Uh, and... We were painting, we painted these things that are like about that big, about that big, and a hook in the back, a little perch, and a hole drilled in, and we could hang them on the wall. So I would randomly select, or my computer program would randomly select four feeders each day and tell me where to put them in the room. Okay? So the chicken would see a feeder in the room that had a peanut in it. Okay? And then so let's say it's this one here, 
it lands here, it eats the peanut for 30 seconds, 30 seconds, and then I turn the lights out in the aviary. And the aviary head was about two-thirds the size of this room. So I sit there, there's a trap door here where I can let the bird in through its cage, and I'm sitting there watching through a, a window. It's like um, darkened so the bird can't see, it, it's swooped by a human sitting there. And I write down when they get in there. As soon as they get there, I start a stopwatch for 30 seconds. Then I pull the lights. I open the trap door to the cage, and I turn a light on their cage. They, they, they go towards the light. They fly back to their cage. I need to blow the mail for five minutes. Uh, work on the crossword. And then the bird, I let the bird back in. But before I let them back in, um, I've covered all of these up. Okay? Typically, this is don't, don't worry about a test right now. Worry about some uh, you know regular trial. I then cover these up with little pieces of Velcro, and the bird the other bird can't see what the food is. His task now, or her task, is to go in and rip off the Velcro and eat the rest of the peanut. Okay, and a peanut for a chicken is a lot of food. Like I, I'm feeding them, it's like I'm giving them a whole chicken. You know, it's like a roast beef. Like they eat a lot of food. Peanut, it's a lot of food for a little bird like that. So they really like them. Um, so once they learn to do that, which they learn to do very quickly, I then would move the array of feeders. See, so move the whole thing over and swap a couple of them. So what I've done, I've swapped this one and this one. Right? So now I know this wasn't the correct spatial location in the room. This wasn't the correct position in the array. It's the second one over. And this was the right color. So now I know what are they going to choose first? The global spatial position, the position related to other here, or the color? What are they going to choose second? What are they going to choose third? And very reliably, as you can see here on the right, they choose the spatial location first, the array position second, and the color third. Okay? Very reliable. So the correctly colored figure was that you paid the least attention to. Um, Dark-eyed juncos, by the way, which were a non-story bird I used, responded to all three kinds of information equally well. Okay. Did you experiment? The same thing happened in a smaller screen, or smaller, uh, sorry, a smaller um, scale with a computer touchscreen. And I won't go into how that experiment works. But using a touchscreen, we found the same thing. This was, this was a long time ago. I had to actually write my own software to read the state of the touchscreen, too. So my foreign language requirement in graduate school, school was Turbo Pascal, which is a programming language. Um, in that case, the birds were rewarded for going to one place or another, like pecking at a place on the monitor. There were different colored patches of, of color, and I, you know, different uh, stimuli. I switched them around. So same idea, but just on a smaller scale, with way more trials per day. Uh, the chickadees relied on space. The junkies, junkies, the juncos didn't. Juncos are like little sparrows. You see them around, and they got um, the gray, but that big. You may do that. They'll still see them around for a little tiny bit longer. They'll be, they'll be gone soon. They, they, they might. 
in fact, another experiment determined that chickadees, when directly tested, do very poorly on color. So in fact, they, they ignore color. You can force them to, to remember color. But it takes, you actually have to force them. You have to, it takes forever to teach them that color matters. Right? Oh, and they can see color. It's not like they're colorblind. As I was asking my PhD world by some guy. And I gave him this awesome, I, I, I'm very proud of my flippant answer I gave him. Because he said, well, they have all the part of their eyes to see in color. They have the right, you know, chemistry, or sort of, uh, sort of wiring. And we know they can discriminate color, so I'm pretty sure they can see color. He says, but you're not completely sure, are you? I said, so you're saying, have I done this psychophysics of chickeny color vision? He said, yes. I said, no, I'm sorry, I was busy discovering things. Which, and I can't believe I did that. And my, Sarah looked at me like this, and then just looked at me for a great big smile. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was pretty proud of myself. He also didn't like that I thanked the Montreal Canadiens for winning the 1993 Stanley Cup in my PhD thesis. In the acknowledgement section, and I asked him if he was a Leaf fan. What a dick. I'll never forget that moment. Well, that was inappropriate. I said, were you a Leaf fan? So why do they do this? Why do they remember space at the expense of color? Um, well, functionally, it makes a great deal of sense, right? So think about this evolutionarily. The birds remember where something is, not what the color is. Because out in the wild, in the winter, colors change. Patches and leaves, they start storing right around now, by the way. You start to see chickadees and such store food this time of year and later on. So colors change, but that line of trees over there is still going to be that line of trees over there. Right? Wind isn't going to blow away those trees, and if it does, and you're a little bird that weighs 12 grams, you've got other problems. Right? You've got other things to worry about. So, uh, the fact, the Junko result's weird. Um, the non-storing result is weird, because even though they don't store food, space is still, they still have to find another ground, find back their nests. It's a weird result. It's been replicated with other pairs of stores and non-stores, so it's a pretty reliable effect. But it's, it's got to have something to do with the, with the uh, task itself that none of us have been able to figure out over here. But it's been reliably um, done on, in like many universities, many, at least two continents, three countries. So happily, because everything I've ever discovered, I figured, is somehow just one of those .05 things, and I got lucky. You know, I, I've always figured my whole career is based on just a statistical work. You know, so that, in this case, it wasn't. Uh, in fact, me and uh, Mike Guavera and a couple other people have tried this with pigeons, something like this, and we actually found pigeons behave like chickens. So something weird going on with the, with the task that I developed. I don't know what it is. But the point of why I tell you all about this, except for to feed my gargantuan ego, well, I told you about it because it shows that you integrate, this is probably the best example of integrating all the different kinds of biology Right, different sort of sub areas. You've got population biology and mathematical modeling from the Anderson Krebs paper. Then you've got field work. Then you've got the psychologist stepping in and saying, okay, let's do the memory stuff. Then you've got the neuroscientist saying, okay, the campus is bigger. So coming together, the idea that this is an interdisciplinary exercise. Question the stuff? I still have copies of it if you want a copy. <laughs> you can also just get it off the internet. A lot of the torrent sites carry all my work. True. 
let's switch gears, talk about problem solving. So we talked about memory, we talked about categorization, let's talk about problem solving. This is called the Waysun selection task. Okay. Now, what's the rule here? Um, that these are cards. On one side they have a number, on one side they have a letter. Okay? So just imagine that's what it's put in front of you. I want you to pick two cards to test the rule that D always has a three on the other side. D's always have threes. That's the rule we're testing. You can pick two cards to test this rule. Which two cards do you pick? So D and the three. The D and the three. That's wrong. The D is correct. Of course the D is correct. You turn that over and see if there's a three. If the three has an F on the other side, does that violate the rule? No, it doesn't. Because I said D's have threes. I said nothing about F's. What's the other one? This is correct. What's the other one? Yeah. I said nothing about S. The rule says nothing about S. It says F and nothing. Ah! <laughs> okay, now we're getting to obvious. There's only one left. It's the seven. If the seven has a D on the other side, the rule's been violated. Right? You see it now? Yeah, now it's easy, right? That's hard, though, isn't it? Okay, let's make it easier. You're a bouncer at a bar. Beer, Coke, 2516. Who do we check for ID? And who do we check with their drinking? Well, let's see. We check the beer drinker to see if he's of age. And we check what the 16-year-old's drinking. We don't care if you're drinking Coke, and we don't care that you're 25. This suddenly becomes trivially easy. Uh, and this has been done, not just that task, but all kinds of other ones. An old student like Jennifer Spencer back in Newfoundland, we developed about 20 of these social, we did social and non-social. So violating a social rule, which is exactly what's happening here. So we had ones about religion. So consuming alcohol and being um, Mormon was one of them. We had ones uh, with eating pork and being Muslim. We had ones, all kinds of things, right? So they were about just social things people do. This is, and it, we did it about cheating detection. Because that's what that is, you're cheating. Maybe you're cheating, and maybe you're cheating. We don't care what you do. If you're drinking Coke, I don't care how old you are. If you're 25, you can do whatever you want. It's you I check to see what you're drinking, and I check to see that you have the appropriate wristband. Right? The cool thing that Jennifer and I did is that we um, developed stories, social stories like this, with this kind of ways on selection task about non-humans, and humans suddenly are all shitty at it again. So the lion is detecting if they're his kids or some other, like his young or some other lion males young. 
And suddenly people are like, I don't know, it's just like that D and F and 3 and 7 thing, man. So we're good at detecting social cheating in humans, which makes a great deal of sense. We're a social animal. Very, very neat results. So cheating detection actually is, is, is trivially easy for us, and it should be. We talked about it with emotion and motivation, right? About how we are this social species. And it's not familiar with the context. This is the reason you say, why did you, you were in Newfoundland, why were you choosing things like Muslims eating pork and Mormons drinking? Because you see, in Newfoundland, there aren't a lot of Muslims. Right? I heard a great thing when I was in Cornbrook, and I'm not making this up. This is my first day, or first, it was the first day of the first term I was there. Cornbrook's the whitest place you've ever been in your life. I'm serious, it was unreal. First day I talked, I was looking up in the class, and I was like, there's something weird about this. What is it? They're all white. I heard someone say, and I'm not making this up, let's stop playing office. You know, I love coming here at Cornerbrook, right? Because it's so diverse. There's Catholics and Protestants. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. I heard that. I don't know where the hell do we live. What's going on? And I mean, Sault Ste. Marie is the world's most multicultural melting pot, is it? But it ain't Cornerbrook Newfoundland, dude. You'd be blown away. Yeah, so. When I went to St. John's. Yeah, you did St. John's, right? It was, like, insanely diverse at Memorial University. Among, yeah, the university actually was, too, as far as the yeah, faculty, that for was, sure. It's funny how the difference goes from Cornerbrook to all of a sudden St. John's, and it's like... Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And, in fact, the, it's different there now, but when I was there before, and it was funny because the faculty were as diverse as any, they're from all over the world. They just hire experts. But the students were, like, not. It was completely different. It's, and it's changed quite a bit as far as the university. Um, the town, though, is still the whitest thing you've ever seen in your life. It's white like Boucherville, Quebec, yeah. which is pretty white. It's the second white place I've ever been. This even works with toddlers. Really? If you tell toddlers you get a D357 thing, they just look at you and cry. <laughs> right? They got no clue. Or they wander off. So toddlers do It's hard for it's hard for us. Hard for them. You know with toddlers, you say, you explain that past to me? You think, okay, something similar, a cheating detection task. And then someone says, you know what we should do? Let's try the uh, beer and coke one. They can do that too. Right? This is funny. Did you read about this in the, in the, in the book, The Big Bird Problem? Right? Which I think is that uh, last night Romney announced he's going to kill Big Bird. I think that was what happened in May. That's what I got. It's like, got on Twitter. He's going to kill Big Bird. He's going to hunt him. Him and Sarah Payne, they're going to hunt down the bird here. Oh, Sesame Street? Yeah, they're going to kill them. They're going to kill them. Um, mind you, this was Twitter time. So, kids watching, you're going to get toddlers, three-year-olds, and they're familiar with this context, they're watching Sesame Street. And it's one of these little video clips, and the kids are playing Simon Said, they're playing Big Bird Sets. Okay? And all you ask these three-year-olds to do is tell me when someone doesn't have their hands on their heads. That's all you're doing. They can't do this. Because three-year-olds, you know, they suddenly think to themselves, cookies, and then they go away. <laughs> like anything comes to mind, anything, they see something in the background, Mr. Hooper, the ghost of Mr. Hooper is there. You know, or, or Oscar the Grouch. 
or something else on Sesame Street or, you know, one of the kids beside them farts or something. The whole thing falls apart. They, they can't do it. But, you, but when you turn it into a game and detecting cheating, detecting not doing the game properly, kids are great at it. Suddenly they're perfect. You say, oh, here's the game. It's called Big Bird Says. When Big Bird puts his, hand, his hands on his head, his wings, I guess, on his head, the other kids are supposed to do that. Show me when the kids are cheating when they're not doing it. Suddenly it's like, oh, he is, he is, he is. They're suddenly, it's like all you do is change the instructions to, it's a game and they're cheating. And kids are like, oh, I got that. I can detect cheating. I'm a human. But, they, but they, if you say, when are they not putting their hands in their heads, they go, I don't know. This is hard. Explains why you turn tidy up time into a game. Turn everything into a game, right? Yeah. yeah. And we get caught cheating, right? Yeah. Clean up, clean up. Everybody everywhere. Everybody do your share. That sounds like socialism to me. <laughs> you rats really burn me up. <laughs> it's socialized sharing, cleaning up. It's like Obamacare. Okay. Again, I don't do Canadian political humor, but you can guess my Canadian political opinions from my American ones. Okay. So that's amazing. The big bird one's great. I love that. I love that. Um, probability. We are really poor at this. As many of you can attest to the first time you took stats, or perhaps the second, um, <laughs> that, you know, it can be hard, right? If I say, what's the probability of something happening? And a lot of times, and I'm not trying to make fun of any of you, because I wouldn't do that. I'll make fun of Dwayne. So, it's hard for him to teach this, but believe me, when I teach it, well, frankly, I think it's different. I'm really good. But, no, honestly, it's hard. Teaching somebody is really hard because it's a hard thing for us to get into our heads about how probability works. Right? The idea of independent events is almost impossible to get across to people. The idea that two things, um, we should be good at this because we should be able to, like, think about foraging. When you're looking for food out in the savanna, which I don't know what the times do, but, you know, imagine yourself back with that guy that puts that thing in his mouth. Looking for food. I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to put the chalk in my mouth. Maddie already took a picture of me with the whale and put it on Facebook the other day. So I know she'd take a picture of me with the, with the chalk, so I'm not going to do it. So, try to respond to Keep that. Um, so, you know, you should be able to say, okay, this is a good place. What's the chance of you finding food there? We should be very good at that. But what we're not good at is independence. So we can't say that we, we fall for the gambler's fallacy all the time. Right? So watch these people. You ever been to a casino? Or out east in a bar? Because they have gambling machines and bars? You ever watch these people play the slot machines, which are random? Well, they're, they're yeah, they're random. Yeah, they're random. And um, people think they have a system. Yeah. yeah. Or people buy a lot here. They would want to just buy a chocolate bar. And there's a guy in front of you, and you're dee 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 winner, Gagnon. And then, bam, bam. You're going, I just want to get a chocolate bar, dude. The bus is 
coming. And this enumerate idiot in front of me thinks this is an RSP. This is a good investment opportunity. Oh, yeah, a lot ahead. No, you're not. If you were ahead, I didn't shut down the lottery. Right? Well, last week, uh, these are the numbers, so it can't be. It didn't be this week. None of these numbers can be in. No, see, you don't understand how the world works. But independent events in nature, there are very few independent events. There are very few coins that you flip in nature, and the last coin flip didn't affect the next one. Right? It's like explaining to people that no, you're not due for a good hand playing poker. Right? No, you're not. If you've had two girls, the chance of you having a boy next time is 50-50. I remember being at a, when I was in graduate school, and I was at a, like a dinner party kind of thing, and Isabel was there, and it was friends of Isabel, and one of them said that it did affect, and I said, no, it doesn't, they're independent events. And the guy said, well, I think it affects it a little, and this one guy said, well, let, let's hear what he says. I said, we don't have to hear what he says, he's wrong. And I sit there and argue with these people about flipping coins, and they didn't even get that I demonstrated it. I flipped a coin ten times. I got five heads. I said, let's do it again. Of course, at this point, I've completely lost these guys. But I'm getting angry because they don't understand the simplest concept in probability. But you got it's hard. Most of the time, in nature's like that. I found food there yesterday. Chances are, there's going to be food there today. Events are dependent in nature, typically. Not independent. So we have things like lotteries. The tax on the annuity. Right? Because it's where it is. That's what it is. And you know, my, my mom, the other day, she said she was going to go buy a lottery ticket when I was going to I said, uh, I said, you just give me two bucks and I'll take it. Because you're never going to see the money again. She said, well, does that mean you wouldn't take in any money if I, if I want? I said, well, no, I'll take your money. <laughs> but you're pissing it away. And she said, oh, I know, but it's only $2 a week. I get really disturbed when I see someone come into Max or wherever, typically Max, and they're buying a hundred bucks worth of lottery tickets. And it's not pro line, like they're not betting on games where if you know a little bit about sports, you can actually do okay. I'm like, uh, my career on pro line, I'm up 13 bucks because I know enough about sports to pick winning teams, you know? But you can't have a system for winning the lottery. <laughs> and it just saddens me. Uh, back in Newfoundland, I used to always say, do you want, do you want to buy a lottery ticket? And finally, I said, can you get me a pen, piece of paper, please? And I took a, his pen, and I said, I'm now going to work out the chance of me winning the lottery. And I worked it out, and I said, so here's the number. He went, oh. I said, so don't ever ask me again. He never did. And I was back there. Uh, I hadn't been there in six years, and I went to that same store that he was there, and he was asking everybody else for a lottery ticket. He remembered. He didn't ask me. Want a lottery ticket for the 649? Didn't ask me. <laughs> and when we give someone frequency data rather than probabilities, we're better at this. We can do what's called intuitive statistics. We can make good guesses, and we should be good at that, but not based on percentages, but based on actual numbers. Then we were good at it. We can, if you change things from probability like proportions into actual numbers, Excuse me, people are better at, at, at doing the task. Doing it intuitively, not actually doing the math. Doing the math just, you know, you, doesn't matter. 
Okay. Sex differences in cognition, uh, you may have been told they don't exist uh, by people for some reason that find this disturbing. I don't understand why people find this scary. So? You know, this is because people think you're judging all women or all men. And you're not. As I said about any group, you don't judge them by group membership. You judge them by their individuality. And that's because if people are too stupid to understand that, that's their problem. But I think that's what the problem is. Um, there are hormonal differences in spatial ability. Uh, we take uh, testosterone seems to make you a little bit better at doing spatial tasks. Okay, male rats are better at spatial tasks than female rats. But female rats that it, when they're very young are given testosterone when they're pups are better than female rats. And male rats that have been uh, castrated when they're pups. That's a hard operation. Not a pups are about that big, but um, they're castrated when they're pups. Are not as good as male rats. So it's all about testosterone. But it also has something to do with uh, estrogen and progesterone. Because if you take, you can try a spatial task. I need a spatial task. Uh, it's, it's, it's strange because what you do is you, you, have, you have to find something that both men and women have equal uh, experience at, which is hardly anything. So what you do is you invent a task, and what you have is uh, prisms that shift the world over 45 degrees. So suddenly you're walking into stuff, and you're throwing a Nerf ball on underhand at a Velcro target. So that's something none of us have ever done. It's hard for a while. Then it becomes really pretty easy. You get pretty good at this. It's amazing how quickly we adjust. And then you compare women and men. First of all, men do better than women at this. It's a small difference, but it's significant. Then you compare women that are having their period with women who are ovulating. Right? And people that are ovulating are better at this than people that are having their period. So your spatial ability is the worst when you're menstruating as on average when you're a woman. It's a small difference. So it's not an excuse to say, I don't want to drive, I'm having my period. <laughs> it's not an excuse when a cop stops you, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I couldn't see the speedometer, I'm having my period. It's not gonna work. It might work, try it, but it's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's a small difference, okay? Um, this isn't surprising that males would be superior on average at spatial tasks. You think about it. The hunting was done by the males. Right? So we've got a plan. We've got to get together and plan. Like, okay, you go there, you go there, you go over there, and then I'll accidentally sneeze and I'll knock over the boulder that kills the, 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 the basket off. It's a, it's a spatially loaded task. Throwing spears and planning out how to attack an animal is very spatially loaded. There's an interesting thing, though. Um, if we take a look at a... This is an interesting spatial task. University-age men and women, first year university. We ask them, we say, we give them a line drawing, are they okay? Yeah. <laughs> we give them a line drawing of a, of a glass. Okay? And we say to draw it in the water. Both men and women are pretty good at this, like 
And then we tilt the glass this way. And all the men do this. Because that's right. Okay? 70% of women do that. Now, when you give them a glass, and you go, they go, oh, jeez, right. Like, they start pouring the water, and they go, like, I don't know how that happened. And it's not like women have no experience with physics. Like, I mean, how the world works. It's like, oh, no, I've never seen liquids. <laughs> so, yeah, so. You'd think women who do art would be a lot better at that, because they're constantly, when you're doing them, um, that's, that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, when I'm drawing that, I'm not going to draw that like that. I mean. yeah. No, I think that may be true. I think that experience may help. Um, the interesting thing is about this, that I can't think of an experience reason this happens. <coughs> right? And it's not that women are stupid. And it's not that this affects them. It's not that women walk around with glasses like this, like, I don't know why it keeps pouring in. <laughs> That's not what's happening. It's some weird vestige that it's detecting some 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 weird sex difference, right? Some conclusions there. Uh, cognition has been affected by selection. Yeah, I'm going on a limb there. Uh, memory is efficient. We can look at both us how we don't remember stuff that's irrelevant, and also look at the little birds. Uh, logic's easy if it involves cheater detection. Right? Logic is hard when it doesn't, when it's D's and F's and threes and sevens. That's song? Yeah. Uh, threes and sevens. Uh, then it's hard. Then it's hard. And there are sex differences in cognition that are small but reliable. They, they're small but reliable, so they should never be something where you say, we should stop women from being fighter pilots. For example, which is an exceedingly spatially loaded task that also involves a lot of aggression. But it shouldn't surprise you when you have fewer female fighter pilots than men. Right? But it shouldn't stop us. You don't say, well, can't, women can't do that. They're delicate flowers, and they might have, um, they might have their periods, so they can't fly pilots. <laughs> but that's, that's not, okay, it's a small but reliable difference. And we're good at intuitive statistics when it's about dependent events. But when it's independent events, we're screwed. That's why, that's why we have to teach you that stuff, right? If we were good at it intuitively, it wouldn't take me or Dwayne or Paul or whoever's teaching stats, it wouldn't take us like weeks to get through your head the idea of what P is less than 0.05 actually means. Right? And on that note, uh, have a good uh, weekend, uh, Thanksgiving. And remember, Tuesday, there's no school. Remember that. It's Founders Day when we all celebrate Something. I think it's. I think it's. The, I think it's the founding of the, of the Dominion in the, uh, the in the Delta Quadrant on Star Trek by the by the founders, the shapeshifters, and we'll all celebrate by gathering around the Founders Day tree and hoping that Founder Claus brings us some presents. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.